chapter 5. And as we lead in, I want to start with chapter 4, verse 28, because Paul, as we studied last week, he used an Old Testament story to draw out some New Testament application. He used an Old Testament couple who was struggling and having children. Now, many of us know people who have struggled having children, maybe some in here. But the reality is, is that God, by the Spirit, had promised Abraham descendants through his wife, Sarah. And as he had made the promise, he promised something that hadn't yet taken place. And so the tendency is when God tells us he's going to do something is that we believe it, at least for a short period of time, and then we start to have doubts, seeds of doubt. And seeds of doubt can be dangerous if we aren't that strong in our faith yet, and we'll start to try to help God out with what he said he would do. Now, if he promises he's going to do something, he will fulfill it. He doesn't need you and I to do that. We do typically have a, a, a part in that following through on his promise, but most of the time, it's trusting and obeying. It's, it's an old song, but it's true. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to just trust him and obey him. I'm trying to teach my daughter that right now. It's hard, right? Because you just have to trust that the other person, in this case, it shouldn't be hard because we trust the creator of the universe, has our best interests in mind. But from the very start of creation in the book of Genesis, God said, trust me, do this one thing, don't do this. And it was because he had their best interests in mind. And then the serpent comes along and says, does God really, does God really have the best intentions? That's not exactly what he said, but that was the brunt of what he was saying to them. He was questioning God's authority. He was questioning whether or not God really cared about them. And because of that, Eve was like, you know, that fruit does look pretty good. It's going to taste good. It's going to make me feel good. And it's able to make me like God and give me wisdom. Who wouldn't want to eat that kind of fruit? I mean, if you went on the internet and somebody posted that to you, and it wasn't in some ad that just pops up in the spam email that is obviously not something good, you might be tempted to go, you know, if they got an essential oil for that, I'm in. You know, right? But, but the reality is, is God was basically saying through the pen of Paul here that sometimes when we try to help God out, most of the time, I even venture to say all the time, when we try to help God out to do something that he said he would do, we're putting ourselves in the place of God and we're in a danger zone. And so Paul said that in Galatians 4.28. He said, now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Isaac was the child that God had promised. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So when Abraham tried to help out God, when Sarah said, take my hands, my maidservant, Hagar, be with her. She will give birth to this child on my knees, Sarah said. Abraham said, you know, okay. Because culturally, that was acceptable. You would just give him another wife, and then she would have children for his original wife. So culturally, it was an acceptable thing. But God said, that's not my way. If I promised I will give you a son a certain way, I will do it whether you feel like it's possible or not. And so when they had this child trying to help out God by the flesh in a fleshly way, there are consequences for fleshly ways of doing God's will. And because of that, Ishmael 
ends up persecuting Isaac. And we still see the results of that in the Middle East today. It's not something that went away a few years later. Sin has consequences that affect more than just you. It it affects generations to come. And so God says, through the pen of Paul here, he says in verse 30, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? He says, this is how you deal with the deeds of the flesh, the fleshly nature. He says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Of course, we're tempted to think directly about the situation with Abraham and go, man, that was mean. Kicking out your own kid and this woman who you'd have him with, you're just going to kick him out? But the, the correlation there doesn't have to do so much with the, the Jerry Springer-like atmosphere that was going on. It has more along the lines to do with what he's saying. When we try to help out God, we, we, the deeds of the flesh produce death. They produce strife. They produce more sin, not less. And so he says here, cast out the bondwoman and her son. Cast out the deeds of the flesh. Put them away. Get rid of them. Flee temptation. And then he says, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are children of the promise that God made to Abraham. We are not children according to the bond slave. We're not slave children. We're free children. We're children that were come according to the promise that God made. That He said to Abraham, you're in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through your seed, which was Isaac, and then all the way down to Jacob, but it says seed. It does not say seeds. A couple chapters back, it said seed. And that seed in most translations is capitalized because that seed was a descendant by the name of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham was not Isaac, but it was a descendant that Abraham would never meet. So when we hope for things that God's promised us, many times we want to see the fulfillment now. And God says, I promised it will be fulfilled. Trust me. I say that because I oftentimes think about how we trust Jesus. What he said, he says, I will return and I will take vengeance on my enemies And I will deliver you to heaven. There's this whole end times thing going on. And we go, but when's that going to happen? Like every generation has thought, Jesus is coming back any moment. Jesus is coming back any moment. And there are lots of people embittered because they go, I thought it would be this generation. I thought it would be this generation. And pastors walk away from the faith because of that. Because of that seed of doubt. But if God promises something, again, he will do it. Whether we see it or not, our job is to stand. It's to stand fast. The idea is to dig our heels in and hold on to Jesus and let him take us on the ride he's got for us. To dig in our spurs, to wrap the rope around our hands and just hold on. Because it's going to be a fun ride. It's going to be terrifying, but it's going to be so good. And so in the end of chapter 4, he concluded that we need to put away the deeds of the flesh And recognize that we are children of the promise. So he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He says, stand fast. Hold on tight. Don't be moved. We're saying, those who trust in the Lord, they shall not be moved. That's because he doesn't move. He's an anchor for our souls, Hebrews says. So when he says, stand therefore, stand fast, these Christians, 
and he's writing to Christians in the Galatian church, they've been trying to stand fast. Many of them had been failing at putting away the deeds of the flesh. And so they said, man, I know that Jesus has saved me, but I don't have any victory over sin. What's the deal? And so they said, well, the Jewish believers, anybody who had a Jewish background would go, I'll go back to what I know. I'll go back to the law. I'll follow this system of rituals and I'll follow this, this, I'll get circumcised and then I'll do all these outward things trying to get the inward to change so I no longer had a desire to sin. But what Paul wrote in Romans is that when we, when we try to do it that way, basically all it does is make the flesh louder. You know, you do this system so long and then eventually you get bitter. You're like, this isn't working either. And then you start to rebel. It produces rebellion. The law does. But we will trust in Jesus to be the payment that turns away the wrath of God. For our salvation, what we find is that we no longer have this burden that we can't bear, but he bore our burden. He took the yoke of sin upon him. And so he gives us a yoke in return, and he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And what it means is that his yoke is gracious. It's one where there's some give. And so when, when he writes here, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, the word liberty means freedom. Stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. You've been set free by Jesus. Just stay in that freedom. And then he says, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So the law was something that kept them in bondage until the time that Jesus would come along and set them free from the curse of the law. He says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. So it's one or the other. You can either follow the law or follow Jesus, but the real deal is you can only serve one master. And if you're serving the set of rules of do's and don'ts, then Christ profits you nothing, but he, he already fulfilled it. But it's interesting to me because he says, don't get caught in another trap. In verse 1, he says, Christ has set us free, but let me ask you, why did he set us free? Did Christ set us free to be caught again? Did he take us out of the snare of the fowler so that we would get caught again and killed? Or did he set us free to be free and to stay free? I'm going to go with stay free. He didn't set us free so that we would be entangled in some other way. I think of being entangled. I think about going fishing. I'm not a good fisherman with the open reel. But when you cast that thing and it starts to get all lopsided and get the bird's nest going on, that's how I get entangled. I don't catch any fish that way. But he says, don't be entangled again, implying that they were entangled before they met Jesus. He says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that you, if you become circumcised, then Christ will profit you nothing. He says, that's a second-rate Savior, and it can't save you anyway. So it's a false Savior. Don't settle for a second-rate Savior. Christ will, this is what uh, Matthew Henry said. He said, Christ will not be the Savior of any who will not own him as their only Savior. Rituals, even religious rituals, cannot save us. You know, how many people do you know that have religious rituals? You ask them if, if they have a relationship with Jesus, and they will say, I go to church. That implies they're not trusting in circumcision. They're trusting in another form of it. 
I outwardly, I go to church every week. And there are many people that go to church every week that will bust open the doors of hell because they don't know Jesus. He's the only way. Um, John 14, verse 1 through 6, Jesus says right there, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And there will be many on that day that, that go to Jesus and they will say, hey, here I am. And Jesus will look at them and they will be convinced that they are child, a, a child of God. Convinced in their own minds that they've done everything. That, and they're going to get there and Jesus is going to look at them and he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never even knew you. There was no relationship there. There was only a form of religion. And, and many people that go to church believe that they're just fine because of they go to church or they serve in Sunday school or they take communion or, they, or some people, priesters, they go to Christmas and Easter and they're like, hey, I did it. And if there's anything in your life where you go, I did it, that's a secondary savior. <laughs> it's not the savior. He doesn't say trust a savior. He says trust, is, trust the savior. So a secondary savior will not work. Jesus doesn't just sweep our sin under the rug and go, you know, you did really try hard. I guess you're good now. Verse 3, he says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Legalism is a trap. A system of rules is a trap. If you keep one rule of the entire law, maybe your thing isn't like, hey, I'm circumcised, so I'm good. Or, hey, I've been baptized. So I'm good. Maybe that's more something that we can relate to. We know many people that have said, I, I got baptized when I was 10 years old at youth camp or at Bible camp or whatever they called it. And, and the reality is that if you have one thing that you've kept, even according to the Old Testament law, and you believe that that's where you're getting your salvation, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. If you trust one part to be your savior, to be what gets you right in the sight of God, then you have to do everything that the law says. Everything. I don't even know it all, and I've read it several times. I, I can't begin to fulfill all of it. Jesus did it because he, he's God, and he did everything to please the Father. He showed us the way to be righteous in the sight of God, and not one of us can do it. So in James chapter 2, it says exactly the same thing. James chapter 2, verse 10. I say this because many times I've been quoting Paul to basically make Paul's case. It's a testimony of one witness. So this week as I was looking through some of the cross-references, I was like, okay, so if Paul said it and then Paul said it twice, does that make it any more true? Well, let's look at what Paul said. We read it in Galatians and then James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. Go on the, on the flip side. They're saying if you, hey, look, I keep this one point, so I'm good. James says if you keep all the points but you miss one, which when you take a test at school and you miss one, it's like, woohoo! You know, I, I was never even close. <laughs> but he says if you get a 99% on the test, A's don't get you there. Perfection is the only grade that he'll accept. He says, 
For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of the entire thing. The law is like a mirror, right? We look at it and we see who we really are. If that mirror is broken, we break the law. <laughs> the whole thing's broken, not just a portion. It's like a windshield. I was with Drew Warren yesterday and he took me for a ride over here. And as we're driving, he's got this beautiful black car. I mean, it's a Ford Focus, but man, it's got like, it's a stick shift, so it's fun to drive, and it shuts off at stop signs, and gets 40 miles a gallon, it's got all this, my Ford Focus did not have any of that. But he's driving it, I'm like, man, this thing, he keeps it clean, you know? And I said, man, what is wrong with your windshield? I didn't say anything about it being clean. I just noticed that the windshield had a, one break, and he drives to, the, I forget what fort he's at, but he's in the Marines, and so he's got a bust in the windshield. And of course, as that bust is sitting there, what happens to those things in a windshield, whether you want it to or not, it travels. Over time, you hit gravel road, you shake it around, and it just travels. So he had a beautiful car, and yet in my mind, I didn't notice anything about it. Except, hey, what happened? You know, and the, the guy just spent tons of time cleaning it that morning. And that's how the law is for us. We, we look at that thing, and if you break one rule... It's all over. So, verse 4. He says this, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Now here's a controversial scripture. You've fallen from grace. There are entire denominations that have said, well, if you've fallen from grace, that means that they've lost their salvation. Because he's writing to Christians. But what he's saying here is that you have become estranged from Christ. Now, where else do we hear the word estranged? I've heard it from people that are struggling in their marriage. All of a sudden, uh, the kids move out, and it's just the husband and wife again. And for so long, they've taken, their focus has been on the children, and then the children leave the house. And this is, I think, an epidemic in our culture because we end up worshiping our children and not realizing it. The children leave the house, and next thing you know, the couple's there by themselves, and they're like, who are you? Because both people have changed the entire time they've had children, but they haven't kept up with one another. And so he says, you're estranged, you're alienated, you're severed, you're separated. Many of them become separated. Because they don't know one another anymore. They've, what our culture would say, fallen out of love. Well, can you fall out of love? Well, you can if it's a feeling. Our culture says that love is a feeling, you know. And, and there was a group, <laughs> I won't sing that. He, it basically, it said, uh, I believe in a thing called love. Just listen to the rhythm of my heart. It was all about how it made him feel when he was around a certain person. Well, if that's all it is, that's going to go away because feelings fade. They just do. But love is an action. Love is something that you do. Love is something that you show. God demonstrated his love towards us by dying for us. And that's how we can demonstrate our love. And so it's not based upon a feeling. He says in verse 4 that if you, uh, you've been, you become estranged from Christ because you've basically got a mistress on the side. Do you trust Jesus or do you trust your works? You know, and, and in all reality, it's one or the other is what he's still making the case for. So you've been severed from Christ. You've cut yourself off from fellowship with him by basically saying, I don't need you. I've got it. Jesus, I don't need you. I've got this on my own. So Jesus comes to us lovingly and says, 
Who's it going to be? Are you married to the law or are you married to me? Because our relationship with Jesus is just that. It's not just a, hey, he's my homeboy. He's our husband, which I always say it's weird for us men, but we are married to Christ. It's an unbreakable bond. It's a covenant. It's a promise. Forsaking all others, like we say for our spouses, except uh, there will be no marriage in heaven, which is really hard on my wife. She doesn't like that. You know, but, but we will all be married to Christ. We'll be joined, knit together. And we, as a group of Christian believers, will be the bride of Christ, knit together with all our gifts, with all of our joy, with all of our excitement to please Him. So, he says, I, I don't, basically, um, I lost my place. He says, you've fallen from grace. When you decide that you're going to do it on your own, You've set aside the grace of God in order to live for the law of God. And these things ought not to be so because only grace can save us. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It cost him everything to pay for our sins. Our sins deserved death. And so he took that death for us. Verse 5, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by works, by faith. He says, by faith. It's not something we could taste, touch, or feel. It's something that we know, that we know, that we know, because God has shown it to us in his word, and we're trusting, we're hoping that what he says is true. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It doesn't gain us anything, but faith working through love. So he says in verse 5 and 6, we Christians... By the Spirit, do this. We wait eagerly. How many of you are waiting eagerly for the promises of God to be fulfilled? How many of you daily find out how weak and how unsatisfactory you are to the Lord? And does that cause you to hope that one day the righteousness of God will be given to us and practically we will be righteous in His sight? I do. Man. Being single, I thought I was pretty good. And I got married. And my wife's there with me all the time. And she's very gracious. But when I know that she, she doesn't even have to say anything, I'll do something in front of her. And it's like, oh, did I just do that? Did I just say that? Did I just act that way towards her or towards my kids or towards that person when they left or whatever it might be? And I'm like, man, I'm so filthy. God, why do you love me? Kelly, why do you love me? You know, and, and then she gives me grace. We wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. Hope is in something that we haven't seen yet. So in Christ, our works don't matter. They don't count for anything. In Christ, faith is working through love. And that's how we obtain everything. We're not doing it anymore because we have to. We're doing it because we get to. John chapter 14, verse 15 Jesus said to his disciples, he's, he's, he said, if you love me, he didn't say if you want to please me, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He goes on further in another place and says, and my commandments will not be a burden to you. Wow. Sometimes they are. And it's because I'm in love with something else other than Jesus. James chapter 2 again, verse 14 
Basically, James makes the case for the fact that faith without works is dead. And in Galatians, he's saying that faith is working through love. But I thought salvation was by grace through faith, not of works, lest we should boast. Like, which one's right? It's confusing, right? It seems like double talk. We'll get there. But I'm going to read James chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? What if, what if someone says, I trust in Jesus, but there's, no, there's nothing in their life that shows that they are, are trusting Jesus? There's no fruit. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but they don't do anything for them, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, then what is a prophet? You say you love them, but you really don't. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So fast forward. Verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Oh gosh, I'm so confused. Is it based on what I do? Is it based on what I live out? Or is it based on what I say I believe? And and the answer is yes. Because... Here's the salve for your wounds. Go to John chapter 6, verse 22. John chapter 6. Okay, so Jesus is making a case for the fact that he is the bread from heaven. It says, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate after the Lord had given thanks. Remember, he fed the multitude. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and they came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're trying to figure out how in the world he got there. We know from reading scripture, he walked there on the water. Lucy told me the other night she could walk on water. I don't think she understands, like on top of it. We can walk through water, but uh... Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, the miracles he was doing, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They ate the food that he gave. They were looking for a savior that would practically provide for them everything that they wanted. That included their daily needs. Do not labor for the food which perishes, he said, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Notice that word, the works. Faith without works is dead. Faith is working through love. He says, What may we do, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. Believe in him whom God sent. So believing and doing are one and the same. James actually writes that 
the demons say they believe in God, and they do. They know exactly who he is. Look at the New Testament in the Gospels, and every time you see a demon, they always proclaim, Jesus, the Son of God, don't torment us, because they know that he's going to judge them. They're the fallen angels. They proclaim the truth more than people that say that they believe in Jesus. But they don't have any works. They don't repent. You know, like there's a, there's a, a breakdown there. But then what happens is Jesus says, the work of God is that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then? Okay, well, then prove that you are who you say you are. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Think about it. We eat bread and it keeps us alive. That's our daily bread. Thank you, Father, for our daily bread. That's in the Lord's Prayer. But does that give us life that goes beyond death? Lots of people eat bread and then 100% of them die. So how do we get past that? Well, Jesus said that the, the true bread comes down from heaven and give us everlasting life. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one who gives life. The law could never do that. And so back in Galatians, oh, where were we? Oh, some other things I wanted to notice from John 6. Basically, believe in him whom God sent. True belief leads to, it results in, number one, salvation. Number two, everlasting life. And number three, resurrection. And those are all existence of a transformed life, hoping in what we do not yet see, trusting in what we do not yet obtain. In Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes this in his own words because he had experienced the same salvation. Galatians, or Philippians 3 verse 4. Paul writes, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, he struggled with it too. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Because number one, I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. We, we know that he really wasn't blameless, but he was following it pretty close. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. In other words, in order to follow Jesus, I had to give up all these things. I had to stop playing the game of holiness and start trusting in the one who is the Holy One. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All the things that, that Paul did before he trusted Jesus, all of his religious rituals, 
All the things that the Jewish community said, if you do these things, you'll be saved by them. Paul said, in order to obtain Christ, I had to count them as trash. I had to take all that junk and throw it away. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I invest my entire life in a hobby, in a religion, in a job, in anything, and then I put all my trust in it, and God takes it away from me and says, you can't trust in this anymore, it hurts. It cuts. Whether it's man's opinion, if you really care what people think about you, deciding to throw that away is a long-term process because it, it's hard to put that off. And so Paul says, I, I, I had all the right things going for me religiously, but in order to receive Christ, I had to count them all as rubbish. And so verse 7 in Galatians 5, he says, you ran well. He's always comparing things to a race. He says, you ran well as if to obtain the prize. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Remember a couple of chapters back, he said uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians. That'll win friends, right? Call people foolish. He says, who has bewitched you? Or another word is, who has fascinated you that you should not obey the truth? So back here in chapter 5, he says, you ran well. Who is it that hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. The, the person that hindered you was not the Lord. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, that's interesting. He says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you have, not, have no other mind, but who, he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So he says, who's hindered you? This persuasion that's hindered you does not come from God. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And it made me think the other night as I was reading this about a passage in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He starts talking about leaven. And it's interesting because in Matthew chapter 16 verse 1, it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they were testing Jesus. So they asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. We, we notice this, right? If I'm driving to work in the morning and the sky is red, I'm going, hey, we might have rain today. It's not a definite, but it's pretty likely. And at night, red sky at night, sailor's delight. So we still have that same saying. And he said to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to tell the difference in the face of the sky, but you cannot tell the difference in the signs of the times. You can tell when it's going to rain, but you don't know when, what God's got in store. <clears throat> he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's talking about the resurrection, the story of Jonah, three days in a whale, and then he comes out, and he's alive. Jesus is going to do the same thing. And he left them alone, and he departed. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they'd forgotten to take bread. So Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Right. It's their bewitching. It's their, see, what, what they have is they have this teaching 
that if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll be good, and you are proving that you're good, and all these things. But what Jesus is calling that is leaven. And anytime you see leaven in the Bible, it's sin. Even in the book of Exodus, what happened? They were in the camp. They were slaves for 400 years. God sends Moses to deliver them. Moses tells them, here's what you got to do. You got to slay a lamb. You got to take his blood and put it over the doorposts. And that was, they were covered in the blood. The angel of death would pass over, kill the firstborn of all the families that did not trust in the blood of the lamb. Right? Sound familiar? And then, as they're leaving, they're supposed to make preparation because they're going to need provisions. So God said, make bread. Except he said, don't use leaven. Get the leaven out of the house. It's part of the Passover feast. Get the leaven out. Well, part of that was a practical issue. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. But also, in the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. So, purify yourselves. Get ready to be delivered. And as they made way to purify themselves and get ready for them to be delivered, the firstborn were killed in all the unbelieving homes. They were delivered out of Egypt, and they were taken to the wilderness. And then delivered through the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness because of unbelief, and then they were brought into the Promised Land. That's kind of a hilltop view But God delivered them through the blood of the Lamb. They didn't lose their firstborn. And so all that being said, he says, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they, not thinking about sin, they're thinking about food that they eat because they're guys. They're thinking about their next meal while they're eating the meal they're eating right now. And they're going, oh man, it's because we we didn't take any bread. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Don't you recognize I just fed thousands of people through just a couple of loaves and some fishes? I'm not talking about bread. I am the bread of life. I'll provide for you. But what he says is, um, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 11, How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak concerning bread? Then they understood, (laughs) hard of hearing, just like us. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Righteousness, not by faith, but by works of the flesh. And so uh, he's just teaching them once again, Paul using that phrase talking about leaven. Their teaching was simply not from God. Verse 8, This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We really need to be careful. God wants to teach us the truth. He wants to use the truth to set us free. But many times what you'll find is that you're trusting not in what the Bible says, not in what God has said, but you're trusting in the traditions of men. That's really one of the biggest snares that I believe we have in the modern day church. There's so few people that read their Bibles and know what God has said in his word. So because of that, we end up following all these traditions. And they're not necessarily bad, but then they start to become equal with the word of God. And because they become equal with the word of God, it becomes sin. Where does your authority come from? Where does what you believe come from? Does it come from man's opinion or God's authority? Be careful. Because it's more ingrained in how you were raised and in the society that you live in than you realize. You know, how many people have you talked to, maybe 
invited them to church and they said, I'm good because I did X, Y, and Z. And we're so quick to go, okay, that makes sense. We don't even realize it, but we start accepting things that are definitely not true. And Jesus said, I'm the only way that you can be saved. No man comes to the Father except through me, a person. And so I've started, in my mind, purposing not to say, do you go to church somewhere? But do you have a relationship with Jesus? And there will be all kinds of answers that go along with that. But that question, I don't know about you guys, but for me, burned in my heart for years. Because I had been to church, I'd done all the right things, I worked the sound booth on Sunday mornings, I did all these things, but I didn't have any peace because I didn't know the King of Peace. And so, we're going to stop there this morning. Verse 9, I'm going to read through verse 10 and then we'll stop. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin is like that. False teaching is like that. It, it gets in and it doesn't have to be a whole big dose and it just permeates the bread just like leaven does. It, you just put a little bit in a batch of bread dough and it just it spreads like wildfire. He says, I, I, <clears throat> I have confidence in you though, in the Lord really, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment whoever he is. So Paul is, once again, he's not trying to be their savior and deliver them from the mess that they're in. He's trying to shed some light on the problem. And then he's also commending to them to the Lord. He says, I'm not worried about you because you're the Lord's and he's going to change these things in you. I just wanted to be an agent that brought to your attention that there's some problems here. Not for the sake of beating them down, but for the sake of, of binding them up. When we sin, when we trust in something else other than Jesus, it's like we're trying to walk around in salvation with a broken leg. And so what do we do when we have a broken leg? Somebody comes along, they get a splint, they try to get the leg set back together, which is hurtful, but then they take something stiff, whether it's a cast or boards. They taught us in Scouts to get a couple of boards and then tie your t-shirt around the thing. And once it's set, to keep it in place and to to make it sturdy until it heals. But that hurts, right? Because when somebody starts to hack away at what we trust in, we fall over, and then we need somebody to help us back up. So Paul wants to be a part of both processes. So let me ask you, <clears throat> I know we've been over and over and over this with Galatians. What are you trusting in? Have you been set free and then gone back to things that will ensnare you? Do you have man's opinion? Do you have a set of rules and regulations? Do you have traditions even that really aren't helping you, but they're actually hindering you from obeying the truth? Because if you do, the bread of life is no good for you because you've decided you're going to eat some other kind of something, some sort of candy, some sort of Smarties instead of bread. And God wants to give us the bread of life because it's the only thing that will sustain us. It was the only thing that would make us grow, give us the essential nutrients we need in order to be healthy as believers. Because here's the deal. If we trust in the law, and that's our salvation, we try to win converts, they're going to trust in the law too. We're going to put off ungodly offspring while trying and saying that we trust in Jesus. And so we need to trust in Jesus so that we can teach others to trust in Jesus. Psalm 51 David wrote that same thing. 
Psalm 51. Have mercy on me according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God does it all, right? He cleanses us. He washes us. We can't do it. He says, I acknowledge my sin, my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil thing in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. We need to teach transgressors God's ways, not man's. We're going to take communion this morning. We talked about the bread of life an awful lot, not to, but it's also the first of the month.